Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us on the uh, Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Uh, We hope you had a wonderful uh, break over Christmas and New Year's. Hope you had a great time with your family. Hope you also enjoyed our seven-part series this year on the Three Martini Lunch Awards. Uh, This year, we're starting the year off with, uh, in a big way, uh, four different topics. The first one, unfortunately, is extraordinarily scary. Uh, The other three, flat-out crazy. And I guess you could say this topic is is crazy as well, Jim. Uh, And that was how so many people in America, regardless of how closely they follow football, were glued to the situation in Cincinnati last night with the Bills-Bengals game uh, with DeMar Hamlin, the defensive back for the Buffalo Bills, making what was you know a pretty violent tackle, but didn't seem all that out of the ordinary last night on Bengals receiver T. Higgins. He bounces up and then takes just a couple steps and then collapses backwards. Uh, the training staff's rushing onto the field, uh, 10 minutes worth of CPR, finally taking him by ambulance to the Cincinnati hospital that's not far away. Uh, later reported it was officially cardiac arrest. No other information yet on what caused that. That may change by the time uh, people hear that. And so uh, plenty of speculation on social media and beyond about what did or did not definitely cause it because, of course, people are armchair experts on everything, it seems like. Um, but just a uh, a scary way to, to to usher in the year in, in the sports world or any other way. Uh, and obviously our number one concern is that DeMar Hamlin can, can be okay here. Yes. And one of my thoughts last night, Greg, was that uh, as bad as social media could be, and of course the usual suspects jump out and say, aha, it was the vaccine. No, no, he took a blow to the chest. Uh, there is a condition where if you get hit in, you know, around your heart, uh, at the right time in the heart rhythm cycle, uh, it can cause a cardiac arrest. And that a lot of people, cardiologists, thinking that is the case. Hopefully by the time people hear this podcast, we'll have some clearer answers there. But when something really terrible happens or really dramatic happens, you know, uh, a, you know, God forbid, you know, a terrorist attack, natural disaster, and you hear or you see everybody else is tuning in, you want to be tuned in as well. And I remember, you know, I, I stayed up fairly late last night, even when, it, you know, until it became clear that the University of Cincinnati Hospital would not be issuing a statement because you just want to hear how is this going to end? What's going to, is this guy going to be okay? Uh, did we witness something terrifying, but in which the player was able to make a, uh, Hamlin was able to make a recovery or are we dealing with something, um, you know, that almost feels unspeakable? And it kind of was this, you know, as as bad as it was, I think, you know, ESPN handled its duties fairly well. And I noticed that ABC switched over to the ESPN feed, interrupted the regular broadcasting. Um, A lot of people kind of grinding their teeth that it took the NFL a while to announce the game would not be finished. Uh, Just, you know, there's a rumor that they wanted the players to get back on the field. Uh, Look, you know, apparently they were administering CPR for 10 minutes. You could see the players, grown men who are some of the, you know, toughest and, and you know, have great mental uh, durability and used to handling adversity, just breaking down and crying. They they, they were traumatized, like they just witnessed uh, some terrible car accident or something like that. So at this hour, I mean, the fact that he got through the night is a good sign for uh, Hamlin, and we will see how this shakes out. Obviously, thoughts and prayers are with him. My last, last time I checked, apparently $3 million dollars. Uh, had been donated to a charity. He has um, people wanting to do something and feel useful and to feel like some good can come out of this. So, um, yeah, not, not another night of ordinary football uh, for, for anybody last night, Greg. 
No, absolutely right. And it's a toy drive charity that uh, that Hamlin uh, spearheaded. So uh, over $3 million will certainly do a lot of good there. And hopefully he's there uh, to figure out how to disperse it uh, most effectively. Uh, just a couple of things. First of all, you mentioned ESPN. I thought Scott Van Pelt did an excellent job. I mean, really going by the seat of your pants in that situation. Uh, you don't have a script in front of you. And they went for a long time. Uh, no matter what I think of Joe Buck and, and Troy Aikman, I think they did a good job. The thing I really liked about Scott Van Pelt, though, in contrast to what we saw on social media, was every time he threw it to a guy at the hospital or somebody else related to the story was, tell us what you know. Tell us what we know. Don't speculate here. We'll find out exactly what it was uh, soon enough. It might be this uh, Camosio Cordis. Uh, there's a story from um, uh, Chris Pronger, a great hockey player back in the day, who took a slap shot to the chest and he went into cardiac arrest and came back and had a, a great career of, uh, of about 12 more years. Uh, other people, you know, you think of Hank Gathers, the college basketball player a while back and uh, just collapsed uh, on the court and uh, and died right there. So no collision, but he had had a history of some heart issues earlier in the season. So we just don't know anything officially yet. So I think uh, as, as rough as we are in the media, I think uh, they handled about as well as you can uh, flying without a net last night. So uh, hopefully we'll be back fairly soon to uh, actually caring about the games, but we certainly don't right now. Uh, all right, on to our first crazy martini now, Jim. And it is just about noon as we uh, record this on Tuesday. And today is January 3rd, which means it's the start of the new Congress. The new members of the House and Senate are sworn in. And the first thing you do after taking your oath in the House of Representatives is vote for Speaker. For the past century, that has been a one-ballot exercise, which is good because they go one by one through 435. Today, it'll be 434 members because uh, Congressman McEachin died last year and his uh, Virginia seat is vacant at the moment. And they go one by one until you get to 218 votes for a speaker. But we've got a very narrow Republican majority. And you've got a, a few Republican members, mostly of the House Freedom Caucus, saying they're not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy, which means we go to a subsequent uh, ballot. Uh, so right now you've got folks like Scott Perry, who's the uh, head of the Freedom Caucus, saying we can't go with Kevin McCarthy. His list of grievances include uh, getting uh, equal representation for what he calls conservatives on all House committees. And McCarthy apparently did not go for that. Uh, he also says he asked McCarthy for firm commitments on votes for things like a balanced budget, the Fair Tax Act, the Texas Border Plan, and term limits for members of Congress, which he says McCarthy refused. McCarthy, meanwhile, has uh, consented on some rules changes, including allowing just five members to uh, call for a vacating the chair, which means uh, a sp another speaker vote. Meanwhile, you've got these uh, folks basically calling each other's bluff here because there are some members of the Republican conference on the moderate side who says they'll work with some Democrats to elect a moderate Democrat speaker. If McCarthy is not the choice, perhaps even on the first ballot, and according to Jake Sherman over at Punchbowl, uh, the folks who are opposing McCarthy uh, say they don't care, and they'll just oppose Speaker Hakeem Jeffries if it comes to that. So, uh, Jim, we have had two months to sort this out, and it appears nobody's gotten anywhere. Yeah, I mean, among the more infuriating and enraging statements I've seen in the past 24 hours comes from, surprise, Matt Gates, uh, who reportedly said that he didn't see too much difference between Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. If you really feel that way, why did you campaign for Republicans to win the House? That, that you know, to me, like, look, I, I have my beefs with McCarthy. I don't think he's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I think you could even argue that as far as House leaders go amongst Republicans, you can make the argument that he's subpar. But there are some strong arguments in favor of going ahead with this, most notably that there is no 
serious alternative. And it's interesting. I keep hearing people on Twitter. Yes, there are. Well, we'll name them. Name who you see as a serious alternative who can get 218 House Republicans to vote for him. Andy Biggs of Arizona tried to challenge uh, McCarthy back in November. The vote was 188 to 31. In other words, more than 85% of House Republicans are unified behind Kevin McCarthy. So, you know, he is the choice of not just the majority, but a wide majority of House Republicans. They've had the case to make their alternative. The more, the only kind of intriguing, serious alternative I've heard mentioned is Steve Scalise, who is quick to emphasize he does not want the job. He sees himself, or at least he's publicly positioned himself, as an ally of Kevin McCarthy. Scalise says he'll be voting for McCarthy to be Speaker, uh, that he wants to be Majority Leader, you know, the number two position in the House. And Scalise, basically, there are probably rumblings that Scalise is like, look, if, I, if, if I'm the only consensus choice that can bring everybody together, I'll accept the job. But he's being very clear not to look like he wants it too badly, which, of course, makes him much more appealing. But I know if you look at the ideological agendas, you look at the philosophy, you look at the voting record of McCarthy and Scalise, you don't see a huge record. I looked it up this morning. Like I may say, you're rating for Scalise is 92, McCarthy is 84. Oh, by the way, you're rarely going to get somebody who's a 99 out of 100 in that job. The job of the speaker is to represent everybody from Brian Fitzpatrick, representing those suburban soccer moms in Pennsylvania, to the most arch-right, you know, House Freedom Caucus member at all. Going to be somewhere in the middle. It's going to be somebody who can work with everybody. Kevin McCarthy is a known quantity, right? You're not going to get at least Stefanik. You're not going to get Jim Jordan. You know, there's all names that are thrown out there by random folks. You're not going to have this, you know, crazy scenario the columnists keep trotting out. Oh, the House Speaker doesn't have to be a member of the House. No, it's not going to be Donald Trump. You've got a situation in which almost 85% of Republicans, actually 80, more than 85% of Republicans like, okay, let's make this guy our leader. You don't have a serious alternative. The idea that there are Republicans running around saying, oh, fine, we'll give Democrats control of the House, demonstrates that we have elected some portion of the House Republican caucus is a bunch of angry toddlers who do not realize you cannot beat something with nothing. And yet, Greg, here we are. The longer this goes, the angrier people are going to get because a roll call one by one of 434 members, that takes a while for just the one ballot, which we normally get. If this goes to two or three or more, uh, it might be dramatic, but it's going to make people really angry and it's going to put whoever ends up being speaker, assuming it's a Republican, uh, in a pretty weak position. So uh, fascinating to see how this uh, plays out, but I'm not sure it puts the Republicans in the best position to have a strong uh a strong posture in the House of Representatives when the Democrats control the Senate and the White House. Meanwhile, if you're still trying to figure out what the uh, members of Congress did last month on the uh, omnibus, which a lot of people on the right are understandably upset about, and other things that affect uh, Wall Street, I encourage you to check out the Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski. Chris helps unpack the connection between politics and the economy and how it affects you. Uh, in addition to the omnibus bill, the taxpayers are also on the hook for another bailout. Last month, uh, President Biden signed a $36 billion check to rescue union workers in the central state pensions fund. So how does all that affect your investments? And uh, whether it's happening in Washington, at the Fed, or on Wall Street itself, how does it affect your portfolio? That's the watchdog on Wall Street. Chris Markowski is the host. Check it out on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, Jim, speaking of New York, uh, where Wall Street is, uh, that, of course, is usually where most folks are paying attention on New Year's Eve, unless you're watching the dramatic end of the Ohio State-Georgia game, which was exactly when the ball dropped on Saturday night, Sunday morning. A warm evening, but also a violent evening in part uh, because of a machete attack against two police officers near Times Square. Uh, The New York Post has more on the story. And it's going to grind your gears because the story is very familiar. Uh, The alleged Islamic extremist who attacked three NYPD cops with a machete near the New Year's Eve ball drop in Times Square is a 19-year-old man from Maine who recently became radicalized and was already on the FBI watch list. Suspect Trevor Bickford of Wells, Maine, traveled to New York on Amtrak, arriving December 29th, and appeared to have been a lone wolf. He allegedly told the feds after his arrest that he hatched the violent plan as recently as Friday and made statements that he wanted to attack a uniformed officer or someone armed because they are, quote, the enemy of the state. Sources said he became radicalized as recently as a month ago. Bickford's mother and aunt had notified authorities because he apparently made statements indicating a desire to go fight in Afghanistan alongside Islamic militants, landing him on the FBI's terrorism guardian watch list. Investigators were said to be looking at Bickford's internet history, including his phone and computer. So, Jim, all too common that this seems to be happening, that this guy's on the radar. Seems to have all happened fairly recently, so uh, it's not like this had been lingering in the FBI's uh, dusty folder for the past year or something. But nonetheless, uh, you know, kudos to the family, but it appears that uh, once again, the FBI had this person on the radar to some extent. And the other crazy part here is how once we knew the motive of this attack, uh, the media stopped caring. Yeah, look, uh, I was not uh, watching a great deal of the coverage leading up to it. The, we're in our house. We probably tune in about 10 to 15 minutes for it. Um, and I was like, God, you know, it's like it felt like 10 straight minutes of commercials. It probably wasn't that, but it seemed like an extremely long commercial break. And I had tweeted out kind of a snarky, ah, oh, they got to get in all the commercials they can before people actually tune in to the ball dropping. I think I was watching ABC, but it didn't seem like it was terribly different on any of the networks. And someone responded, it's probably because of the stabbing. I'm like, what? What? And I took a look. And it eventually, first of all, you had to go looking to find, uh, you know, some tweet reports uh, that there had been a stabbing attack in Times Square against police officers. And then within the next day, now look, you know, it's New Year's Day. It's traditionally a slow New Year's Day. It's new, slow news day. Uh, bowl games and and such, you know, I think the NFL games were the following day. Um, but you really didn't get a, the kind of coverage you would expect. And it's very hard to believe that that doesn't reflect a broad media perspective that Islamist terrorist attacks should not be uh, emphasized in coverage unless they're unless they're so large you can't you know you can't possibly ignore them. Um, you know I'm glad to hear that apparently the the cops at least it sounds like last we heard the cops are going to pull through okay, but that is still big news. You know, but, you know people tune into this. This is always one of the biggest television watching you know nights of the year, and obviously the crowds of you know. They're packed to the gills in Times Square. Um, and so the idea of some Islamists trying to stab people, okay, it's not a bomb. It's not a mass shooting. Thank God for that. But this seems like a big deal. And you and I have been you know, beating this drum since the days of our infamous Disney CTU sketch. This idea of you know, number of people who are on the watch list of the FBI, but who don't actually have any type of intervention before they actually do this. Now, I realize this is tough. I realize you got to build a case. But it just kind of feels like this endless pattern of, you know, terrorist attacks that could have been avoidable or should have been avoidable 
but instead cannot be done because there are just too many people on the watch list, not enough resources, and you just never know when some nut job is going to, you know, go off on something. So a really unfortunate way to start the year, uh, but apparently most Americans won't hear about it because a lot of places just don't think it's all that newsworthy. Yeah, if it had been a different story, uh, depending on the motivation, uh, it would have been wall to wall. But unfortunately, in this situation, uh, it's got to get buried. All right, Jim, on to our final crazy martini now. And boy, do we need some comic relief. And thankfully, the New York Times was happy to uh, oblige. They uh, ran a column by a writer named Mara Altman. And Mara Altman's thesis, Jim, is that if we're going to save the planet, we need more short people. From where I stand, she says, at five feet even, being tall is a widely held fantasy of superiority that should long ago have been retired. And so uh, she says, Thomas Samaras, who has been studying height for 40 years, good for him, uh, and is known in small circles as the godfather of shrink-think, a widely unknown philosophy that considers small superior, calculated that if we kept our proportions the same but were just 10% shorter in America alone, we would save 87 million tons of food per year, not to mention trillions of gallons of water, quadrillions of BTUs of energy, and millions of tons of trash. What's her solution? Finding shorter people to marry and uh, procreate with. When you mate with shorter people, you're potentially saving the planet by shrinking the needs of subsequent generations. Lowering the height minimum for prospective partners on your dating profile is a step toward a greener planet. She goes on to say, short people don't just save resources, but as resources become scarcer because of the Earth's growing population and global warming, they may also be best suited for long-term survival. And then finally, she says, the future I envision is different. I want my children's children to know the value of short. I want them to call themselves short drinks of water with legs for minutes. While one yells, I'm the shortest, I hope the other will bend his knees to gain an advantage, shouting, no, I'm the shortest. And so, Jim, Mara Altman is short, so she wants everybody else to appreciate shortness. Uh, as we've always said around here, you know, character is what matters, uh, not necessarily what you look like and other uh, demographic characteristics, but the quality of the character. I'm six feet. If I stand up straight, you're taller than me by a number of inches. So I assume as a tall person, you've got a distinct rebuttal to all of this. Greg, I'll speak on your behalf and behalf of tall men everywhere. My temper is the only thing that's short about me. <laughs> Proposals like this make me wanted to go to the author's office and rearrange things, putting everything important on the highest shelf. Uh, you know, let's see how it, what an evolutionary advantage that is. Now, once I once I hide all the step stools and all of that, first of all, every once in a while, like this is probably it seems like a little bit in this. You know, I'm making an important point about the environment, but also a little bit of the personal essay, personal narrative, and I genuinely believe that a good fifty percent of what gets sent to the major op-ed pages, particularly. New York Times, Atlantic, publications like that, at least 50% of those should be responded to the authors with, this is really a conversation for you and your therapist. <laughs> Clearly, you have some sort of deep-rooted problem, some sort of anxiety, some sort of you know deep insecurity about being short. And let's face it, yeah, at least amongst men, it's always been considered a high-status circumstance. Uh, you know, it's, just like, it's not like I, I got on a rack and stretched myself out to be this way. I lucked out. It's great. The world is full of, you know, fine, short men. Ladies, give them a chance. But having said that, the idea that we're going to go in the other direction. I mean, look, I don't know about you short people. Uh, you, oh, you've got all these disadvantages. Life is tougher. Do you have any idea how many times I've bumped my head on things? All right. Do you have any times, you know, I go through uh, you know, traveling through Turkey and they had, you know, doorways that are only about, you know, six feet. How I bumped my head. Life is not necessarily easy. Do you know how much farther I have to reach down to pick something up off the floor? 
Life is not necessarily easy for, for tall people either. And the idea that, oh, now we're going to discourage this as some sort of, you know, uh, habit. I look at this and I'm like, you know what? This is such a not problem. It doesn't even qualify as a first world problem. <laughs> this is an anti-problem. Oh, Americans are getting too tall. Well, you know, the worlds are getting too tall. Well, great. You know why? Because we were meant to reach for the stars. And I'm sorry, short people. You just can't reach high enough. Mara, uh, if you want to find a short man to start a family with, if you haven't done that already, go for it. Knock yourself out if that's what you prefer. Telling everybody else what they need to do is crazy. Jim, on that front, I'm happy that you're tall. I'm happy that I'm remotely tall. Uh, well so, above the average, Greg. Well above the average. Yes. And a shout out to my 6'5 father-in-law, too. So hopefully my kids will be fairly tall. Uh, and so we'll, we'll pick her from there. We might even have a speaker tomorrow, Jim. Who knows? Hope Springs Eternal. Uh, you know, it's not a Monday, Greg, but it sure feels like one. <laughs> sure does. I don't know if we've ever started off the year on all crazies, but we did it today. Uh, Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday. And join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.